Welcome to the Rumble Podcast. Here at Rumble, we are a catalyst and a movement that exists to reach men, connect them to Jesus, and equip them to live as kingdom men. In this episode, we're going to our 2022 Regular Joe Conference. This takes place every year in November, and our theme is based around Acts 4.13. How the people looked at Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were regular Joes, but they took note that they had been with Jesus. We want you to sit back, relax, and let this speak to you. It's my honor, it's another privilege of mine to welcome our, our other guest speaker today. Um, Rico has been a great friend of our ministry now, going back a number of years. He's been a great voice um, and guidance, especially in our heart, our continuing um, passion to reach men with the gospel of Jesus and the world that we live in. What does that look like? And Rico, we are blessed, we are honored, we want you to feel at home, we want you to go for it. And let's welcome Rico as he comes and takes our next session. Thank you, Rico. It's a great joy to be here. If you could turn with me to Mark chapter 9, that'd be great if you've got a Bible. Mark chapter 9. And um, I'm going to read these verses just to say um, these, these shirts from Rumble are just amazing. My wife says that this is the shirt I look slimmest in. <laughs> So can I just thoroughly recommend them? They're great for your sex life. So there we are. So that's what I did there. So. But, um, but, it, but, but it, yeah, so thanks for the shirt. Brilliant. Let's look at this passage now, guys. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. So um, this is the false teacher. Uh, Suetonius talks about Augustus. Uh, having his son's tutors because his son had become arrogant. They had a millstone put round their neck and they were thrown into the Tiber to teach uh, the son uh, uh, not to be so arrogant. But that's where that sort of comes from, a false teacher. That's what will happen. And then Jesus goes on. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands going to hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you uh, to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Let me pray. Father, we dare to pray that what we learn now from the Bible would stay with us all our lives. Uh, We long for the glory of Jesus, and yet there's such a battle inside and outside. Please speak to us through the Bible now, and please change us, we pray. Amen. Well, I'd like you to sharpen your pencils, and let's start with a quiz. I'm going to give you four names, and then I'm going to read two quotations, and I'd love you to write the author of these uh, names. So here are the four names. Pharaoh, the Emperor Nero, Stalin, and Adolf Hitler. And the question is, which of these, those men said this? Throw these worthless servants into the darkness. There they can weep and grind their teeth. 
Get out of my presence, you damned, and go to the fire that will burn forever. And of course, it's a trick question because the answer is none of those. The person who said those things, brothers, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was speaking of hell as he is unequivocally in the passage that we have just had read. It's extraordinary stuff, isn't it? As we come, if your eye, verse 43, uh, causes you to stumble, cut it out. It's, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it out. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell. And the subject of hell in my denomination, I don't know what's happening uh, here in Ulster, is almost never spoken of. Contrary to what many think of the church, it's scarcely even mentioned. I spent the summer reading Knowing God by Jim Packer. Can I recommend it to you? But in Knowing God, Packer says this, how often in the past year did you hear, or if you are a minister, did you preach a sermon on this subject? And in a way, this sermon too is a tribute to the Queen, because for many of us, we remained loyal to the Church of England while the Queen was alive, believing her to be a faithful servant of Jesus. And this is what uh, Sinclair Ferguson told me. A member of the royal family was leaving one of the great worship centres of England and said to the presiding minister, a figure of some significance in the hierarchy of the church, is it true that there is a hell? The minister replied, your highness, Jesus taught so, the church has always believed so, and the creeds teach so. And the reply he got from Her Majesty was this, then why in the name of God will you not say so? And uh, I think we are facing a real cultural onslaught with her death. I think she held so much back in terms of certainly the Church of England. Um, I wrote this book, Honest Evangelism. It sold very well. I've sold 17 copies. I'd like to recommend it to all of you. And in fact, it was quite funny. When I wrote it, I, I was meant to write it in 2014. I had a sabbatical, but it was the Football World Cup. So I spent the, the World Cup watching the football not doing this. Um, it's because I got a third at university. When I got my third, I said, to, was I close to, my, to a 2-2 two, two to my tutor? He said, no, Rico, it was a very solid third. So I, I knew I had to become an Anglican at that point. But I, I was writing, I was meant to write it then. And then at half term in the October, um, uh, uh, because I hadn't done it, we had to meet. My wife and I sat, and she did an English literature degree, and we went through each chapter writing it, and her parents babysat the children. And I wrote this, this book. And after five days, I said to my wife, I said, gosh, this is wonderful. Here we are, working for the gospel, writing this book. And she looked at me, and she said, I hate you, and I hate this book. So I've dedicated it to her. And, uh, but in the book, by far the most significant thing I kept on saying was, there is a pain line you have to cross. There's a pain line in evangelism. We all have it. Doesn't mean I don't want to be sensitive to people, but as there's certain things that you say, talk about an adventure, there's a pain line you have to cross. And there is no word, I think, that is harder to get over on the pain line than this one. Certainly in England, hell is not a happy subject. It's a profoundly serious subject, and it's not a subject of polite conversation. In fact, I know of no subject that is less appreciated. Indeed, there is, in fact, only one context, I think, where you can speak of hell, and that's when it's a curse or a joke. We seek him here, we seek him there. Those Frenchies seek him everywhere. Is he in heaven? Is he in hell? That damned elusive uh, pimpernel. So it's amusing and pure trivialization. But hell is a subject that is used in the Bible again and again. It runs right through the Bible. And you cannot fully appreciate the coming of Jesus Christ without grasping what the Bible says about hell. You cannot understand why he came. 
In fact, I don't think you can be a Christian without believing this. At the heart of the gospel is being saved from hell through the cross for heaven. So just as in a great painting, it's often the dark backcloth which makes the foreground appear so luminous and shine with such clarity, so there is a sense in which it's only as we plummet the dark depths about human destiny that the wonder of God's amazing love becomes clear. It's only when I see hell as the result of my sin that I, I begin to see the wonder of what has happened. So Victor Hugo uh, uh, famously said, life's greatest happiness is to be convinced we're loved. One second, I'm just going to put this up. No, I can't. Will it come up a bit? Oh, sorry, everybody. No, it won't. That's fine. Right about down there. That's as far as it goes. Yeah, that's fine. That's great. Um, he said, life's greatest happiness is to be convinced we're loved. Well, if I understand what the Bible says about hell, I can't, I mean, it's just overwhelming. So I think of my own depravity. I just, I said this earlier. And yet, here is, here is a summary of my life. Rico Tice, The Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. And because of the gift of righteousness, which, of course, Luther discovered uh, in, in, in 1505 when he had his tower experience, when Luther suddenly realized that the heart of the gospel, as he did Romans 1.17, is not the essence, it's not a righteousness we offer to God, it's a righteousness we receive from God. And, and you know, it's just overwhelming. So here's this book, and I wonder if you can see, because of the gift of Christ's righteousness, every page is blank. Because as God looks at me, how does he feel about me? <sighs> He's delighted with me. Why is he delighted with me? Because he's delighted with Jesus. And I relate to God, not through my performance, but his. So Gresham Machen, as he was dying, cried out, the Westminster theologian, I thank God for the obedience of Jesus. Those were his last words. Because I stand before God. This obedience is how I relate to God. Now, can I just say, if that isn't overwhelming to you, I don't know where we go. Because that, that if, if, if the wonder of God's gift of grace... When I was a little boy, we lived in Africa, so I got my stupid name, Rico Tyson, Chile, because uh, my dad grew tobacco and we were in Chile. I was christened Richard, that's Ricardo in Spanish, shortened to Rico, so Rico Tyson. It's not Tico Rice, I spent my life being called Tico Rice. <laughs> but then we went to Africa, and when dad went off on trips, he used to, if he went to Europe, he'd, he'd bring back an asterisk book. And I can tell you, as a little boy in Africa, as a five-year-old, when he brought this back, this was my treasure. I could have read this on a manure heap, the first two hours I got one of these, I mean, honestly, oh, asterisk. Is the gospel that for you? I just, I didn't need, the, I needed nothing else in the world the first two hours I got this asterisk book. Where are you on that? And Victor Hugo said, life's greatest happiness is to be convinced we're loved. So I've got to go through the dark valley of sin, judgment, wrath and hell to get to having my identity in the grace of God. And, uh, and, 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 and as the gospel uh, uh, speaks of the wonder of salvation, it has to be set against the dark depths of this. Otherwise, what does it mean? I mean, we, we, we can't tell what it means to be raised up to the promise of heaven until we realize what it is to be the, raised up from the prospect of hell. And I can't tell you with what weariness I say this because I come from a family that is mainly non-Christian that actually is convinced that these solemn truths are untrue or if true, are somehow irrelevant. Actually, because they think they're good people. I remember watching my uncle die, and he just said, Rico, I'm a Christian because I'm good. Well, why did God send his son to die? And I want to ask and answer some questions, crucial questions about the subject of hell, and explain why it's so vitally important for us as Christians uh, as, as, uh, to, to believe it 
Because, it, you know, what is it that comes from, 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 from Jesus? And I just want to say, again, it may be that you're not a Christian and you're here. Can I just say, it's just fantastic you're here and you've come along today being dragged along and here you are sitting here listening to some overweight English peasant. I just want to say thank you for coming. But I want to, I want to say to you, I want to say to you, if what I'm saying now for the next 20 minutes is true, this is, without question, the most important 20 minutes of your life. If this is true, if you're here and you've come for the day and we're thrilled to have you, but if this is true, this is the most important 20 minutes of your life, so please listen. This Does hell really exist? So Paul the Apostle tells us, this is the first point if you've got notes, in 2 Timothy 1.11, of the appearance of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. And so Paul is in the Mamertine jail as he writes this. He is about to face the executioner's sword. And he says that actually by his death on Good Friday and the resurrection on Easter Day, Jesus has secured for us eternal life. My mother became a Christian in her 70s as she was dying in Basingstoke Hospital. I said three things to her. I said goodbye, I said I love you, and then I said to her, I will see you again. I'll see you again. And you can give me all the money in the world or the knowledge, I'll put my arms around my mother again, and I'll pick her every time. The day of reunion is made possible because of the resurrection of Jesus. And that past certainty gives us a future hope. It's like a thread. I'm sure Andrew would use this in youth work. You know, you know it's like a thread that you... That, that it, 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 he, he is the needle that goes through and he pulls us behind him. So Jesus lived and taught. He had a band of followers. He was tried in a Roman and Jewish court. He was sentenced to die. They strung him up on a cross. They put a spear through his side. They took him off the cross. They, 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 they certified him as dead. And three days later, he was walking around again. And if he got through death himself, he can get me through. And yesterday, I had a child's funeral. But how can I at any funeral speak of Christian hope and not also speak of this? You see, it's amazing. We've got these lying pastors who, 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 you know, they love to speak of heaven, but they never speak of hell. No, I'm not saying you speak of hell at a funeral. I don't do that. I don't do that at a funeral. But there are times like today when you do speak of it. Because how can I take Jesus' word on heaven for sure if I can't? Don't take this as well. So the epitaph for the Christian is not rest in peace, but C-A-D, Christ abolished death. And therefore, at this point, we come with this question if you're taking notes. Here is the question. Lord Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, this is what we say to him. What do you say about life and death? What does Jesus, who got through death, say about life and death? And he not only makes heaven and the new creation clear, he also assures us, supremely it's Jesus who assures us of this in the pages of the New Testament, as the risen king of a place called hell. He does it again and again. And so let me categorically say that it is Jesus who most clearly and fully teaches the fact of hell. It's none other than Jesus Christ who has come to rescue us from such a place. And what I want to do now is, this may be a shock to you, but I just want to cycle through the verses. I think they're going to come up on the screen. In Matthew's Gospel, brothers, have a look at how Jesus, because people say the Bible isn't clear. It's crystal clear. Look at Jesus. Let's have the first phrase up. Uh, And any one of you who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. You know, people say they like the Sermon on the Mount. Really? Well, that's in it. Let's have another look at the Sermon on the Mount. 
If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Next verse, brother. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Now, do you know, it's very interesting, that verse in Matthew 7, in terms of what's going on in the Church of England at the moment, in my denomination that is apostatizing as we speak. But uh, let me read this to you. Matthew 7.13, just, just as a, 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 something for prayer. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a through find it. So if you're considering the Christian faith as you're sitting here, my dear friend, and you're not a Christian, it's going to be very hard coming to Jesus. It'll be a great adventure, but it will be hard. It's a narrow gate. But verse 15, listen, everybody. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So as that is taught on the narrow and the broad road, the next thing we're taught is be careful of false teachers. So by implication, what does the false teacher do? The false teacher does not speak about judgment and hell. He says, don't worry, you're fine. He says the broad road to destruction is not such a road. Jeremiah 23 uh, says the same. So how do you diagnose a false teacher? They don't speak about hell. Maybe you've grown up with somebody who's gone on and on about it. And do you know what? The tone is so important here. There's not a sort of, I'm so sorry if you've had someone with a vicious tone say this. I say this with tears. I come from a non-Christian family. I've buried relatives and I leave them in God's hands, but I don't have optimism. I leave them with the Lord. But, but nevertheless, to not mention this puts you in the category of a false teacher because you're saying the broad road isn't a broad road. On we go, next one if we can, please. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the next one, please. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is the bishop's problem in the Church of England. They fear the culture more than they fear the Lord. You've got to fear the one who can throw you into hell. What can men do? They can only kill you. Don't worry about them. Next, for, next one, please. They'll throw them into a blazing furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so it goes on. I mean, this is Jesus who speaks of this again and again and again. And, and, and it comes. So please hear me on this. Uh, what we're told here is that there is judgment leading to condemnation, leading to conditions variously described as weeping or lostness or gnashing of teeth or flames of fire, and this is most clearly stated in the teaching of Jesus. And of course, that must be true because he is the one supremely who understands what he's come into the world to do. That's why he speaks of it. He understands his mission to save men and women from this, to save you. I mean, these warnings that he issues, the language he uses, why does he, loving Jesus, passionate Jesus, caring Jesus, life-transforming Jesus, why does he, of all, not remain silent on this issue? Because this is the very reason that he came. Because unless he comes to die, the destinies that await men and women are beyond thinking, beyond bearing. And you see, the trouble is, we live in a culture of such tolerance that we forget how serious sin is. But this is how serious sin is. And I want to say, if you're taking notes, please jot this down. This may be the only thing to jot down from this talk. This is the only Jesus there is. There's no other Jesus. If this isn't Jesus, we don't know who Jesus is. He is the one who says this again and again and again. 
This is the only Jesus there is. And he is the one that came to save sinners and gives us the ultimate understanding of why we need salvation. Because without this, our destiny is one of infinite loss. I got ordained in 1994, and I was at my church, All Souls, and there was a preaching card, and we were preaching through two Thessalonians. This was about 1995. It was a year into ministry. I'd been given two Thessalonians, one to expound, and the passage I had to expound that morning at All Souls, my church in central London, was 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. You may know the verses. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And I said, God will ask us two questions. Do you know me? Have you had your sin forgiven? And if you haven't, then you will pay for your sin yourself. That is the passage. And at the door... There was an elderly American man who came to the door, and his wife had died three weeks before. Over their 45 years of marriage, they'd never gone to church, but he was grieving so deeply as he'd come over to stay in London that a friend took him to All Souls. And at the door, he was shaking with rage that I talked about hell, and obviously thinking of the plight of his wife. Of course, I would leave her in God's hands. I'm not going to speak on that, but it wasn't, didn't sound great but she's in the Lord's hands. I'm not going to say where she is. It's up to the Lord. But anyway, about uh, three weeks after I'd met him at the door, he wrote me this letter. And he said in this, I can't imagine a just, kind, and loving God inflicting pain upon my wife. That is the sort of niggardly cramp for you that if something inside me tells me is wrong. I think you're really preaching your own bizarre views when you say that those who do not believe in Christ and do not follow the gospel are going to hell. Why you have such views is another matter, but particularly where your views have such a horrendous effect upon others, I think you should carefully consider whether to speak in such a manner. On December 1984, um, there was a huge fog on the um, uh, M25 motorway. And early in the morning, a lorry carrying paper crashed in the fog and the warning lights came on and there were hazard signs everywhere and the police were quickly on the scene. But driver after driver ignored the warning lights, ignored the hazard signs, ignored the fog and drove on. In fact, apparently, when police tried to stop them, they actually accelerated away from the police. And, and uh, what was then building up with this, with this uh, pile-up was so bad... Seeing the fear and destruction, some of the policemen actually picked up traffic cones and started hurling them at drivers' windows to get them to stop. And one newspaper wrote this. One of the policemen had tears running down his face as he threw cones at the drivers who would pay no attention. Can I say, with these words, can I say, Jesus is throwing traffic cones at our windscreen. He is saying, stop, stop. Can you not see the danger? But it is difficult. It is difficult. And getting that letter early on was distressing. But at the end of the day, it simply would not be possible to be faithful to the Jesus of the gospel without understanding that he is the one who supremely warns of the judgment of hell. He tells us it is real. The one who was raised from the dead tells us it exists. The one who was raised from the dead who's been to the other side and come back, tells us it exists. What do you make of that? So to the question, is hell for real? Jesus says, yes, it is. Yes, Jesus says so. Secondly, what then is hell like? What then is hell like? 
Now, this may be something that many of us Christians would likely say, well, it's something the Bible doesn't speak much about. It's so little about it. It would be sheer speculation for us to say anything. But the truth is almost the exact opposite. It's the reverse. The Bible has yards of information about the nature of hell. Granted, the Bible understands that the reality of hell is so terrible that it must in very nature go beyond the power of human language to either explain or describe. But it does have several important things to say about the nature of hell. But the first thing the Bible says is that it is a sphere of punishment. So the whole function of Jesus' teaching is to underscore for us that there is a just judgment of God in which men and women will be separated from his presence as a penal judgment for their rejection of God's authority. Since Sarah Everard was murdered in London, 20 other women have been murdered. Some of those who did it have not been caught. But there is a judgment to come, and it's a wonderful thing. And that goes all the way from the individual, like Sarah Everard, all the way through to Putin. There is a judgment to come. And above all, the sin that, is, that is, causes God to cause most anger is rejection of Jesus, because God sends his son to die, and we say, no, I don't need that. I've got a little boy, Daniel. Say you're outside my church one day. And a lorry was coming, it was going to hit you. Daniel, my 10-year-old, ran, ran along, threw himself and knocked you out the way and was killed. And imagine you turned around and saw his body and we all knew that it would have killed you, but actually he saved you. And you said, I didn't need him to do that. I was fine, I saw it, you know, I'm, I'm okay. That's what, that's what my family do. They say, we don't need it, Rico. Well, why did God send his son to die? And nothing makes God more angry than rejection of the cross of Jesus, of what his son has done. And so the kind of language Jesus uses is that of one who experiences punishment. Mark 9, verse 48, their worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. So it's a place of suffering. Secondly, it's a place of separation. What is it like? A place of separation, of outer darkness. You know, living in London, you never see this. But I think if you go to parts of Donegal or to the highlands of Scotland, it is possible to actually uh, uh, go out at night and actually to hold your hand here and to see nothing such as the darkness. And this is what we're told here. You know, it will be a place of total darkness, total isolation. And Jesus is throwing traffic cones at the window saying, careful, of, of disorientation, of separation from relationships. Relationships give us our identity, your value, your sense of function. You know, going to Kingsbarm or Ravenhill with the, the family and the outings or the rest of it, or up to the coast. You know, those days, it's the families. And suddenly one is cut off. It's a place of total separation. And perhaps the most solemn thing of all here is the Lord Jesus says the word everlasting. I mean, disorientation we can take for a moment. Punishment we could endure for a season. Separation we could cope with. But surely it is the word, it is the word everlasting that is emotionally untenable. Matthew 25, 46. Then they will go uh, 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 away to everlasting punishment. And the word is ionos. I only know two Greek words. One is kebab and the other is this one. But, 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 but ionos here, brothers, ionos is eternal. And the same word is used for eternal life as for eternal death. So I can't escape from, 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 from this everlasting word. Now what does this say? It says to us, God takes your life with infinite seriousness. Again, if you're someone here who's come, can I tell you, and you're thinking of Christian faith, can I tell you, God takes your life with infinite 
seriousness. He takes your relationship to him with infinite seriousness. On this occasion, when I use the word infinite, I mean infinite. Infinite. And if we reject that relationship, then we reject him who is life and the source of life. And in a strange way, God dignifies us by saying, I will take your decision about your relationship with me with permanent seriousness. So is hell real? Yes. What is it like? Jesus says it's a place of suffering and separation. Thirdly, who is it for? Who is it for? And again, back to verses 43 to 47, uh, if they come up. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter life, enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. So who is it for? Brothers, it is for those who say, I can do what I like with the hands God has made. And I can go where I like with the feet God has made. And I can look at what I like with the eyes God has made. And the Bible says, no, God has made them. They are just miraculous. God has made them. And what you do with them, he will hold you accountable for. So John Stott said, the road to destruction is defined by two things, tolerance and permissiveness. Tolerance, I can think as I please. Permissiveness, I can do as I please. And it is this sense of, of permissive liberalism that permeates the culture with the freedom of the individual. And what I'm saying to you all is, it is the way to hell. It is the road to hell because God has made our hands, eyes, and feet, and what we do with them we're rightly accountable to him for. So it is my creator's business, and the man or woman who goes to hell says, no one, no one tells me what I do with my, with my life. No one, how dare you? How dare you speak to that? No one tells me what to do. Well, that is the person who goes to hell. And Jesus, of course, in these verses, speaks of drastic surgery, there is to be no negotiation with sin. We've got to battle it. Jesus said, light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So you come away on a day like today, my brothers, and I'm saying to you, where is the battle? And go back to fight. So there are two things with sin. One is that we, we get knocked over by it and we lie down and we go, if you understood that I'm a victim and what I've gone through, you'd realize why I have to do this. And the other says, no, I'm getting up and repenting for the 500th time. And that's what I'm like in terms of the number. Battles with sin that have gone on and on and on. But you've just got to, it's like the boxer who gets up. You say, I'm repenting again. I'm battling again. I'm always repenting. Brother, if you've stopped battling, battle again. Cut off the hand. Pluck out the eye. Take radical surgery. Is hell for real? Yes. What is it like? It's a place of punishment, separation, darkness, and fire. Who is it for? It is for those people who will not change, who will not submit to their creator, who will not go to Jesus. Then lastly, as we close... 
uh, as we close. How can I escape, if at all possible? How can I escape? Well, the good news is that it is possible to escape, but in order to escape, you have to have some sense of why it is so important that you should escape. You have to see the seriousness of what is going on. Can you see verse 48 of Mark 9? Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Do you know, one of the most horrifying things we've seen in our generation in the last 20 years, of course, was 9-11, the Twin Towers in flames at the south end of Manhattan. And seeing those almost unimaginable pictures of horror people were experiencing up at the top floors of that great building. And do you remember, they were actually joining hands and leaping to the ground because anything would be better than the fire in the building. Leaping. Joining hands and leaping off. And so if we can see the danger, how can we escape? And of course, the reason the Lord Jesus came was to bear the hell that we deserve. I mean, how precious are you to him that he should do that for you? To bear the hell that you deserve because of what your hands and feet and eyes have done. That is how much he loves you. He comes in order that we might be saved from the awful destiny and received into the new creation with this funeral yesterday, Phil and Emily said, we'll see our little boy again, 11-month-old Timothy, in the new creation, and we live for the day when he'll have a new body and we'll be with him. And the doorway to this is Jesus. And there's no other explanation, no other reason for that terrible cry of his after the crucifixion. My God... My God, this is outer darkness. Why have you forsaken me? Do you see what was happening there? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was entering into death as the judgment of God against my sin, against what my hands, feet, and eyes have done, against what I have done. Day after day, week after week, year after year, I'm so embarrassed to confess it. But he was, he was dying, and, and he was taking my place because what I have done was falling upon him. So Jesus cries out, why have I been forsaken by you? And if there is anything that would persuade you of the judgment of God and its awfulness, then go to Calvary. How serious is your sin that he should cry out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My sin is so serious that he had to be forsaken. And then, and then he gives me this life, he doesn't just die for my sin. He then gives me his perfect righteous life and he says, Rico, mate, why don't you relate to God through what I've done and get given the gift of righteousness? I'd do that if I was you, Rico. Why don't you take communion, drink the wine and eat, 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 and eat the bread and say, it's for me. And as Jesus experiences the essence of hell, the outer darkness, the, weak, the weeping, the, the, the gnashing of teeth, there in the depths of the cry, piercing that afternoon of darkness, he provides the rescue from your plight and he opens the door to heaven and he makes a way so that as he cries, my God, my God, why have I been forsaken? You and I can cry through Christ, my God, my God, why have I been accepted? Why have I been accepted? 
And you see that Jesus has loved us so much that he was prepared not only to enter our world, but go to the very depths of hell to bring you up to heaven and the new creation. And it is no small thing. It's no small thing. It's just an extraordinary gift that he has given us. Uh, It's like a magnifying glass. Imagine this whole room was a magnifying glass. And through it are passed not the sun's rays, but actually the judgment of God against my sin. And imagine that it all comes down, all my sin over the decades. It comes down, down, down until it hits one man at one point in history. So he cries out, my God, my God, why have I been forsaken? All my sin pours onto Jesus in that moment so that I can cry out, why have I been accepted? Can I say again, if you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian today, there is but one way to go to hell. There's only one way you go to hell this day. And it's wonderful to have you here. There's one way. You have to trample over the cross of Jesus. He blocks the way to hell. He says, don't go there. I'm blocking the way. I've died. I've paid in death and blood for you. But if you want to go, the only way you get there is you trample over the cross. And we're saying to you today, we're saying don't do that. He's loved you so much. He's come to die for you. Now trust him to lead you. Do you know, in the old days when a preacher finished a sermon like this, he would ask this question, where will you spend eternity? Where will you spend eternity? Culturally, at the moment, certainly in England as an evangelical, people think I'm on the wrong side of history, but I'm on the right side of eternity. And where will you spend eternity? And by God's grace, may there be no doubt doubt what your answer will be. So for the one or two here who might not be Christian, again, we're thrilled you're here. Here's a prayer that we can finish with. I wonder if we can put it up. Here's this prayer. I'll read it once, and then you might want to echo it in your own heart. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm so sorry for what my hands, feet, and eyes have done in your world. Can I tell you, if you're not a Christian and you're looking at that, we're with you. We're ashamed of what we've done as well as Christians. The only qualification for being Christian is not are you good enough, but are you bad enough? Bad enough to know you need this forgiveness. Lord Jesus, I'm so sorry for what my hands, feet, and eyes have done in your world. Please forgive me. Thank you so much for bearing all my sin on the cross. Please send your spirit to help me turn away from everything in my life which the Bible says is wrong and follow you. I'm going to say that slowly now. I'm going to say it phrase by phrase. And my dear friend, it might just be right for you to say it now. To come to Christ now. And I'm on my knees because I'm saying there is a place called hell. And this is, a, this is the warning and he's died to save you. So please come to him. Here it is, I'll say it phrase by phrase. Lord Jesus Christ. So do echo it in your own heart, in the quiet. I'm so sorry for what my hands, feet and eyes have done in your world. Please forgive me. Thank you so much for bearing all my sin on the cross. Please send your spirit to help me turn away from everything in my life which the Bible says is wrong and follow you. 
Amen. If you've prayed that, talk to the person you've come with. That'd be great. Now, just as I finish, for the rest of you guys, how do I speak to my non-Christian friends about this? I'm saying, Rico, look, I believe this, but how do I raise it? Can I say to all of you, what I'd like you all to do is buy a cigarette packet. And get, a, get one. I'd just like to thank Spud for lending me this. Spud, thank you so much. And I know that you'll be wanting to get outside and have one. But anyway, I know, Spud, thank you so much. I always keep this on me. And I say to my mates, I say, look, I mean, my dad made cigarettes for 37 years, so I come from a tobacco background. That's where I was saved from. But, but I say to them, I say, look, if I was smoking 80 a day of these, with the warning that's on here, smoking seriously harms you and others around you. Get help to stop smoking. Consult your doctor and pharmacist. I think there'd be a duty of a friend if you were, if you were just, you know, just smoking 80 a day to say, listen, mate, there's a warning there. What do you make of it? Now, it's then up to them with what they do with it. But I need to warn you, it's dangerous. And I say to my friends, look, there's a warning on the packet of the Bible. It says there's a place called hell. Can I just give you that? I'm not your friend if I don't give you that warning. And, and so I have my empty packet, and I just say, I don't know what you make of it, but I'm only saying it because I'm concerned. You see, to say nothing means you don't care. So who's the person you need to warn you need to go and fish out a cigarette packet from out of the bin or wherever it is. And you need to, you need to just say, look, mate, I don't know. I, 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 if you were smoking heavily, I'd warn you. I need to warn you with this. Now, I'm worried about saying it because I think it might put pressure on our friendship. And this friendship is so important to me. But I just want to know I've warned you. And Christmas, he comes because he's to save us from that. Can I ask what you make of it? What do you make of the warning of the packet? And if you just say, look, mate, don't mention it again. You know, I'll leave off, I'll pray, but I need to warn you. And this is quite a... I, anyway, can I, that's my application of today. Start smoking. There you go. <laughs> but, but guys, guys, we, who do you need to warn? Who do you need to warn? Just gently, they're friends. You need to say, look, mate, I'm concerned and, you know, I'm worried. We need, who do we need to warn? Let's pray as we close. Oh, Father God, we're just so grateful for Jesus who came to die that we can be rescued. And Lord, where our hearts have grown cold to just how serious our sin is, what our eyes, feet, and hands have done, we just thank you again now that past, present, and future sin is forgiven because of Jesus. We can't believe it. Lord, please send us out as men of great joy. And Lord, these dear friends, you know we care for them. We've known them a long time. Give us the courage, please, to, to just warn them, to just lay it before them. Please give us courage. And Lord, as we speak to them, please open their eyes. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. We really hope and pray that God's word has spoken to your heart and that his Holy Spirit has empowered you to go out and be an effective man. That people would look at you and really take note that you've been with Jesus. If we can help you or your church in any way in engaging and in reaching men, both inside and outside the church, this is a huge need in our time and in our world at this moment. Please go onto our website, rumble.vision, and send us an email, reach out to us. We would love to get a coffee and to talk to you about some of the things that we have that can help you at a local level. 
but we do hope that you can join us again soon for our next episode be blessed and we'll see you again soon